Two years on from the start of the pandemic, Australia's unemployment rate is now at a near 50-year low of just 4%. The share of underemployed Australians, those in work but who want more hours, is at its lowest level in more than a decade. But what is full employment? Who benefits most when unemployment is low? And what lessons should we learn from our rapid economic recovery from the pandemic? I'm Kat Clay, and here to discuss the new report, No One Left Behind, Why Australia Should Lock in Full Employment, are Brendan Coates, Economic Policy Program Director, and Alex Ballantyne, Senior Associate. Hi, Brendan. Hi, Alex. Hi, Kat. Good to be with you. Hi, Kat. Good to be here too. So this idea of full employment, where did it come from? I mean, Alex, is it fair to say we're at full employment now? So straight into it, right. So full employment has a long history in this country, starting with a 1945 white paper from the Curtin government, then later enshrined in the Reserve Bank Act of 1959 by the Menzies government. So there's a bipartisan history of full employment in this country. Simply put, we can think about it as everyone who wants a job can find one, but there's a lot more going on under the surface. We can think about it as being a state where uh, the demand and supply are balanced in the labour market as well as in the market for goods and services. But that doesn't mean zero unemployment. There's always going to be some amount of unemployment, people transitioning between jobs or maybe structural change in the economy, making it difficult for certain skilled workers to find jobs. So we have this level of unemployment that we think uh, is going to balance inflationary pressures. We can also think about it further as not just the number of people employed or the number of people unemployed, but also the amount of work people are doing and hours approach, because there's also a pool of workers who might not be getting the hours that they want. So there's a lot going on under the surface of this simple term, full employment. Are we there? Well, who knows? It's a very hard concept to pin down and there's a lot of different estimates of what it might be. Recently, the Treasury has revised down their estimates. We think maybe it's got a three in front of it. But where we are at the moment is in a good space. The labour market is, uh, is strong. Unemployment is low, the lowest it's been in nearly 50 years, and underemployment, those workers who uh, are employed but looking for more hours, has fallen from 8.5% before the pandemic down to 6.3% now. And so that's a really big improvement. The employment to population ratio is the highest on record. All of these things are great signs. But we also think that at a tight labour market, at full employment, we'll see some wage growth. Now, the RBA says that talking to firms, they've seen that coming. The ABS data we get next Wednesday and we'll find out uh, just how tight the labour market is. This sounds like an idea that everyone can get behind. Everyone who wants a job can have a job. It sounds kind of obvious, but why should we worry so much about unemployment? Unemployment sucks. As anyone who's ever spent time searching for a job would know, uh, but it runs much deeper than jumping through some hoops of some strange application that a firm makes you go through. The research shows that unemployment casts a long shadow, far beyond the immediate impact on your income. But let's start with income. So crunching the numbers, 
we found that the first spell of unemployment for a worker who otherwise has a good work history hits them very hard. Five years after that spell of unemployment, their income is 11% lower still. The cumulative effect of that is nearly a year of lost pay. So that's a really big hit. And this aligns with international evidence on this type of um, phenomenon. That's the immediate impact on uh, income. But as people have a period of unemployment, their skills can erode. They could lose those professional uh, networks. They're not getting on-the-job training. And employers might actually view you a bit differently. They don't know if you lost your job because the firm uh, had a, a, you know, a bad year or if because you're not a very productive worker. And so it can be hard to get back into the labour market. So that first spell of unemployment can lead to further spells of unemployment and sometimes even just giving up looking for work altogether and leaving the labour force. Now, that 11% figure actually strips out a lot of those effects. And so the total effect can be even larger. But it's not just a financial issue. Unemployment also damages mental health and reduces overall life satisfaction. We updated a sort of a 2007 study that tried to put a number on that effect of life satisfaction. You know, the figures are, can be a little bit ropey, but they found that updated in 2020 dollars, unemployment is worth the equivalent of an annual extra $65,000 for men or $130,000 for women. So that's a huge impact. Unemployment is also associated with uh, physical ill health and suicide. Some of that can be related to the mental health effects and has also been shown to have spillover effects on family members. So spouses, children can suffer as well. Unemployment is a social problem, not just economic, but it's also an economy-wide problem, not just an individual problem. Recessions can damage the economy in the long term, leaving us with an overall smaller workforce as people leave the labour market and not providing the conditions for firms to invest and expanding the economic pie. So there's huge costs of a recession and high unemployment. Thanks, Alex. And it certainly does have those societal effects as well as economic effects. And I mean, many of us have been there, like you say, firsthand and know that feeling of being unemployed. And it's a really difficult time. Now, I'd like to know from your studies, I mean, who benefits the most when unemployment is low? So we delved into this to, to find out which groups um, would bear the burden of downturns. And one way we did it is to look at the rise and fall of a, a group unemployment as the national overall rate of unemployment uh, moves. And we found that those lower skilled workers, so those with only high school education, people in manual jobs, as well as younger workers, they had larger changes in their unemployment as the overall uh, economy changed. So they were more exposed to the business cycle. But it was low wage and low wealth workers who stood out. When we threw all of the different sort of group characteristics together to see what stuck, it was these workers, low wage and low wealth. In a downturn, they are twice as likely to lose their jobs. So those at the bottom bear the burden of a recession. The flip side is that they reap the benefits of a strong economy. So when real GDP growth picks up, the poorest see the most gains across labor market outcomes employment, hours, income. Overall, on labour income, it's the poorest 20%. They had 2.5 to three times larger increases in uh, response to GDP growth than the average. 
that's a huge boost in livelihoods for roughly 2.5 million workers. I'm stating the obvious here when unemployment obviously affects people who are unemployed. But one of the interesting things from your report is talking about how it affects people who are still in jobs. Can you elaborate a little bit on that, Brendan? It's clear that unemployment hurts people that are out of work, but it also still hurts people that are in work. A tight labour market, a strong labour market has big benefits for you know all Australians. And you see that most clearly in wages growth in particular. So, you know, we've seen wages stagnate over the course of the last decade. Most Australians have had very limited real wage increases when you think of some things like the wage price index. I think the average real wage increase since 2011 has been about 0.3% a year, which is much lower than what we saw in previous decades. Now, part of that is productivity growth is slower and productivity growth is ultimately what determines living standards in the long run. But a big part of it as well is just that unemployment was, in hindsight, too high in the years between the global financial crisis and the COVID pandemic. You know, so unemployment was averaging five, five and a half percent through that period. Uh, when we now see the unemployment rate at four percent, those estimates of the the rate of, of full employment, you know, the most common estimate is the non-accelerated inflation rate of unemployment, the NIRU, those estimates have come down. And in hindsight, it looks like we had perhaps, you know, a percentage point or more of excess unemployment in the years leading into the pandemic. Now, that's meant that in our numbers, that accounts for at least a third of the slowdown in wages growth that we've seen. So if people are worried about you know, their wages, one thing they should be making sure is and pushing for is that we, we have a tight labour market. Because in a tight labour market, you get more, you've got more competition for workers, you improve workers' bargaining power, and that does lead to higher wage rises. Now, at the moment, we're seeing signs of wages growth. It's going to take a little bit of time to come through because most workers in Australia are employed under, you know, collective bargaining agreements. They're only rolled over every two to three years, and so a lot of those haven't reset. Another, you know, 20% of workers are employed under uh, awards, which are all linked to the minimum wage um, decision from the Fair Work Commission, which has been the, the subject of a lot of political debate during this election campaign. And then the rest are on minimum contracts or sort of private, private contracts like, you know, staff at Grattan, um, and they often get rolled over a bit quicker. So if you want stronger wages growth, one of the best ways to do it is to have a strong labour market to be running at full employment, and that has benefits for everyone. I mean, Brendan, haven't we always aimed for full employment? Well, yeah, in theory, that's kind of what the arms of macro policy is supposed to be aiming for. But, you know, if you look at the years leading into the, the pandemic, you know, it's now clear that we probably weren't there. So, you know, we've in, if we think about what's happened during COVID, this is a macro success story. We've managed to get unemployment down really quickly and it didn't occur by accident. You know, we've used the arms of monetary policy, so the Reserve Bank cutting interest rates. They've gone and bought bonds through the quantitative easing program and they've committed to keep, they had committed to certainly keep interest rates low until they saw actual uh, evidence of inflation rising. The government, which had previously been pushing for, you know, surpluses of 1% of GDP, had instead sort of committed to keep unemployment low uh, and to keep fiscal policy accommodative, accommodative to spend until unemployment got back below where we were. Now, the contrast with what we saw before COVID couldn't be more striking. In that period, unemployment, you know, averaged five, five and a half percent. We saw sluggish wages growth. Now, why did that happen? Now, partly it looks like mistakes, certainly in hindsight, in the conduct of monetary policy. We've talked about before on the podcast and a couple of the webinars that the Reserve Bank didn't push down interest rates when it had the chance, when inflation was below the target for essentially six years. 
Uh, they didn't push lower because they were worried about these concerns about financial stability. They were worried about house prices. But what our report shows is that there are big costs to that kind of choice and that kind of mistake in the sense that, you know, unemployment's higher, the most vulnerable people in our community, the most vulnerable workers are hit hardest. So it's not, we shouldn't take for granted that we're always going to be in a world of full employment. It's something that we have to consciously aim for. And, you know, in the pre-COVID era, it's fair to say we didn't achieve it for close to a decade. So, I mean, right now we're seeing inflation on the rise in Australia and around the world. How should we tackle that now, keeping in mind the desire to stay with full employment? That's right. So this is where you've got um, inflation emerging. It's not just an Australian phenomenon. It's a phenomenon around the world. That's because to a fair degree, what we're seeing is inflation caused by supply shocks. So a reduction in the productive capacity of the economy globally because of Ukraine, the war there, um, has led to really high gas prices. It's led to higher commodity prices and the like. China is going through a pretty tough time when it's trying to manage this sort of zero commitment to zero COVID, which in Australia made a lot of sense before we had vaccines, but we now have vaccines that are very effective. And the problem there is the Chinese have been using the Sinovac vaccine that isn't very effective against Omicron and other strains. Uh, and you've also got the sort of the legacy of kind of COVID era supply shocks. You know, we had huge dislocations in supply chains during that period for everything from computer chips to cars to whatever else. And we're still dealing with the legacy of some of those. Then demands come back really strongly because of the success of macro policy in Australia and elsewhere, uh, which has pushed unemployment down low and got and supported people's incomes. And so you, instead you have inflation emerging. So inflation's at 5.1% at the moment. To put that in perspective, the Reserve Bank's target band is 2 to 3%. And so we're in a world where inflation is above target. It's expected to remain above target for a couple of years. So look, in the short term, the best way, it sounds contradictory or counterintuitive, the best way to support full employment in the long term is to tackle inflation in the short term. That means the Reserve Bank has got to raise rates, which is now doing. Uh, it expects it's probably going to raise rates by a couple of percentage points over the next couple of years. Um, Phil Lowe has said he thinks the cash rate will probably end up at somewhere back at 2.5%. For putting in perspective, it's risen from 0.1% to 0.35% with that first rate hike. Uh, and the federal government's got to avoid adding further fiscal fuel to the fire, which unfortunately they did do during the budget. Uh, you know, we spent an extra 1% plus of, um, of GDP on additional cost of living measures that are going to be rolled out. And that will add to the inflationary burden because it adds to demand. Um, but we shouldn't lose sight in all of this of the fact that in the long term, we should be, as inflation subsides, hopefully in the next couple of years, pushing for full employment. But it's really tricky in the short term. You know, we talked about minimum wages before uh, in the context of, you know, pass-through of low unemployment to wages. One of the controversies of the election campaign is Anthony Albanese, the opposition leader, committing to or supporting an increase in minimum wages of at least 5.1%, so enough to keep up with inflation in the short term. You know, I have a lot of sympathy for that, for the fact that wages growth has been pretty weak. And I think there's probably, you know, impatience about uh, getting wages to rise now that unemployment is low. Uh, it's just that we've got these supply shocks. And so the risk there, of course, is if you do increase the minimum wage by that amount or, or more, um, then the risk is that that gets built into firms. Firms then pass on those costs uh, to their, to in the forms of higher prices and you kind of get that sort of, inflationary wage price spiral that we saw in the 1970s and 1980s, which is actually something that, you know, Alex wrote about in the report. The challenge from here is you've got a really fine line to walk. 
You know, someone has to wear the costs of these supply shocks. They make us poorer in the short term. We cannot buy the same goods and services. You can think of an analogy as like bananas being wiped out by cyclones in Queensland. All of a sudden, no one can buy bananas. That makes us poorer. What we're seeing is almost like a supply shock on a global scale because Ukraine and China and COVID have reduced our ability to produce goods and services and someone pays the price. The question is just kind of who pays that price. Um, now, if we do it via wages, then the risk is you get inflation. There are other things government could do. You know, government could try to redistribute some of the costs of that via some particular cost of living measures. You know, they could look to increase job seeker. They could look to give more support. The issue there, of course, is you're adding to demand. That adds to the inflation. So they would also need to pull demand out of the economy at the same time to get us all to save more. That's a really tricky thing. But, you know, we've been here before with things like the Accords in the 1980s. You know, we could we could do that again. It probably requires a bit of out-of-the-box thinking of how to manage this process, this period, to avoid the mistakes and, the, and learn the lessons of what we learned in the 70s and 80s. You could imagine this essentially as part of some kind of grand bargain. You know, if our politics allowed it, um, you know, which, you know, is hard to imagine the context of where we are in the election campaign. But a new government that's going to deal with these problems is going to have to think really carefully about how you sort of manage these inflationary pressures. And as Alex says, some of the best ways to do that is to obviously boost the supply side of the economy, boost productive capacity of the economy, while also just managing demand in the short term. Brendan, the more I talk to you about macroeconomics, the more I realise that there's such a fine balancing act between all these kind of levers in the economy. So the big question is, how should the Reserve Bank and federal government lock in full employment in the long term? Kat, this is really about, in the short term, it's about inflation. In the long term, we're going to have to, we're in the process already committed to rethinking some of our macro policy framework. And what, what I mean by that is that there's going to be the first review of, of the Reserve Bank in 30 years, something that Ratner has supported. So both sides of politics are committed to that. That review should look at kind of, okay, what did go wrong you know, during that period over the last decade? At the same time, what are the limitations of monetary policy? What are the challenges in a world where, as we've talked about on the podcast before, if, in fact, if interest rates, while they're going to rise from here, are likely to remain closer to the zero lower bound than they have historically for all these global reasons you know, that we've talked about previously, they're going to have to think very carefully about kind of what the role of, of, of the Reserve Bank is. And I think in particular, they should revisit this trade-off that they made in previous statements of monetary policy, joint statements between the government and the RBA about prioritising financial stability compared to full employment. I think that, in hindsight, in my mind, was a mistake. And that's something that hopefully they will revisit. And it looks like the Reserve Bank has learned some of the lessons of that. On the fiscal side, we've accumulated huge amounts of debt during COVID. That was the right thing to do. It has helped us get to where we are today. But, you know, there are long-term structural budget pressures. You know, federal budget expects that spending will stabilise at 26.3% of GDP at the end of the decade. That compares to an average of 25% in the sort of decade before COVID. So spending's gone up, taxes haven't risen. We've kind of got a structural budget deficit of, say, 2% of GDP. Whoever wins the election, as they look at the fiscal policy settings, um, needs to learn the lessons of COVID, which was that when the economy is weak and if the Reserve Bank's struggling to do its job, and uh, particularly for it the zero lower bound, then fiscal policy is very effective. But at the same time, we need to balance and manage uh, in the long term the fiscal position, probably by raising taxes for debt to be sustainable. 
it's going to be, we're essentially going to have to revisit the kind of fiscal rules that govern government spending and tax decisions. And both, and whoever wins is going to have to do that on the Reserve Bank side. They're going to have to think about it for the fiscal rules. And in doing that, they should keep full employment front and centre in working out how to balance these, quite, what are, as you say, quite difficult trade-offs at times. Thank you, Brendan. And I mean, there are a lot of our recommendations for tax reform in the Orange Book, which is available on our website, as is the report that we've just been talking about today. And a lot of our work on tax reform, economic growth and labour markets as well. So there's a wealth of information at grattan.edu.au. If you've enjoyed this podcast today, please talk to us on social media at Grattan Inst on Twitter and at Grattan Institute on all other social media channels. Likewise, Grattan Institute is a not-for-profit organisation and we do rely on donations from our lovely listeners like you. If you'd like to support our work and support our podcasting, please visit grattan.edu.au forward slash donate. As always, please take care and thanks so much for listening.